The scream started again today, a slow, silent scream of frustrated anger. Today I wailed at the wall of officialdom. Thy banks, O Barrow, sure must be the muse's choicest haunt. Else why so pleasing thus to me? Else why my soul enchant? All too often, if you look at anthologies of Irish poetry from the 18th century, the 19th century, and right into the 20th century, you could be forgiven for coming to the conclusion that few, if any, women were writing poetry. Bell bugling brute, you threaten my identity. You flank my entrance and put out my light. But if you look more closely, you can find lost manuscripts and books and names that have been overlooked. What has brought thee, O speck of fire, speaking of love and the heart's desire to a land so dead? Their circumstances and what they wrote about are wide and varied. How I am held within a tranquil shell. The night the black news reached us across the sea from France. Pots are muttering on the lowest heat in the kitchen. A scuffle surely now ensues. They often wrote in spite of lack of recognition, lack of support, and not least, the eternal obstacle of daily life getting in the way. For spite of all sublimer wishes, I needs must sometimes wash the dishes. In this programme, we hear the stories and work of three women whose poetry has been rediscovered. Florence Mary Wilson, born in the 1870s. Dorothea Herbert, who was born a hundred years earlier. And we begin with a more recent poet. Angela started writing in, I suppose, 1982, when her children had begun to grow up a bit. This is Susan Connolly, and she's talking about her friend and fellow poet, Angela Green. Stirrings is dedicated to her youngest child, Ruth. It's set in the kitchen of the house and it is about that moment where I suppose Ruth was just beginning to move away from childhood and become a little bit more grown up and maybe on this occasion she was having a little sulk and she was not telling her mother what the problem was. Stirrings for Ruth. Pots are muttering on the lowest heat in the kitchen. Stony-faced on the mat in front of the stove, she sits in pigtails, torn blue jeans, stained runners, clutching a fat black cat. Her pale cheek is pressed on his furred cheek. His sleek paw is curved to her rigid shoulder. His purr is stilled, sensing this fierce first struggle. I work around them. It was here she built her leaning towers, acted princess to the legendary frog, would soar weightless, drifting for hours within her very own wonderland. She used to throw her anguish onto my neck, drained each scalding hurt into my ear. For this brittle world she is entering, she chooses an animal's embrace, a stove's warmth, and what magic adheres to an old mat. Angela Green's poem, Stirrings, read there by Paula McGlinchey. 
Susan Connolly first met Angela Green in the early 1980s. There was a writing group, Barbican, which met in the back room of a pub, Clark's Pub, and I met Angela there. When the writing group stopped meeting up, Angela and Susan continued to meet and encourage each other's writing. Because I had very young children at the time, I was in a very noisy house. It kind of suited better that the children were minded and I would go up to Angela's house maybe every couple of weeks and uh, we would just read our our poem and then we would comment on it. And uh, I think that as her own family grew up, I think her daughter Miriam became her best reader. She wrote her poetry in a room upstairs that used to be my brother's bedroom and it looked out on the street and she had a good view and she had a lovely desk, a lovely inlay desk and hundreds, probably more books all over in stacks and in the walls and everywhere and always by her bed. She would bring me in and ask me my opinion on poems, which to me was a little bit of magic because... uh, she actually took my opinion on board and would change them according to what I said because if something didn't make sense to my visual brain, she would change it. And it was, it was a lovely time that we got to connect with each other. Angela wrote about the life she knew. She wrote about a bomb that went off in the Phoenix Park when she was a child. Uh, she wrote about the troubles in the North. She wrote about her family. She wrote about her parents, beautiful poems about her mother. She, she wrote about the world she saw and lived. My mother was born in England. All the children were bar one, um, and then they were sent over from England to here before World War II started because my grandfather had fought in the First World War, had witnessed some horrific things and didn't want his children to be caught up in that. So she arrived back in Ireland with an English accent at a time when that was not a really good thing. Um, I remember her father very well, the most handsome man that ever lived. And her mother was very elegant and my mother had a huge devotion to her. Angela wrote a poem about her own mother, Miriam's grandmother, which has a particular resonance. I'm going to try and read Mother and I'm going to try and not cry. Mother. If there were times our sameness seemed a trial, our jealousies and peaks frothed layer on layer, rest in peace, you win, for even in death your body chose a dignity and beauty all its own. Friends startle now at my very likeness to you, your body language, your tone of voice, as if I'd presumed to imitate you. You and I know the difference. And I can still enter that bedroom afternoon with your filmy eyes grown girlish to see. In its red-yellow ribboned box, the honey and almond layer cake I bring you, hot from the tea time express. A small brightness for your deep loneliness. We scoop and enjoy in mute content, for you are tired with years. Your head slips back into your new childish sleep. I watch how minus the weight of worlds your features resume their original grace. How the late winter sun excites the silver of your hair. I touch your skin, the awe in its cambric fineness, then let gently fall the bedclothes over your hands. 
laid in feathery relief on your bird-like breast. I tidy tea things, glad to gather and store the gift of this moment when it is clear, Mother, that we touch only what we both know has no words. She met my father at a dance (laughs) and they fell in love and courted and he bought the house, I think, a week before they got married. Angela Green and her husband spent their married life in Drogheda. Our garden was an oasis and I think it's probably what saved her. She could go out and create and watch things grow. And it's a bit of like meditation. I'm finding myself doing it now here. It's uh, therapy in a way. And it was an old garden that had kind of fallen into disarray and she was able to restore it and grow vegetables and fruits. And then we had this old orchard at the back that she decided to turn into a patio and that was just an abundance of radishes and apples and all sorts of things. And she felt that when it began to become overgrown, the garden would notice and the garden itself would know she was gone. Ancient Garden To this ancient garden, I am a future ghost. A pale shape in its tiredness that waters and weeds. A warm pressure on the wintry earth. A kneeling form bedding in plants. Hopefully, like a pilgrim at a shrine. It is aware of me in its own scheme and tolerates the changes caused by my succession. Feels itself, wearied by the seasonal round, the prunings, the mulchings, a spate of wilderness tangling its fragrances, and it will know that I have passed on. It will be lost, of course, but slowly, and not in my time. A beech tree or a haze of bluebells survives for generations. But my devotion will fall from it, evaporate. My excesses and mistakes will run riot to clog its furthest edges. Though the clipped yew trees, those Victorian enthusiasts shaped, stand vigorous and green at any time, A frail woman, her life grown thin, would petrify if she did not move, would whiten among their harled roots. In the 1980s and into the early 90s, Angela Green's poetry began to get published and to gain recognition. She was published by Blood Axe Books. They had a national poetry competition and several of her poems were published in a really lovely book. And then she won the Kavanaugh Award. It was a big deal. If you won the Kavanaugh Award, you were on your way. The excitement, like childish glee of her running around and we were all so proud of her. What it meant was... The poet who won 
gave a reading at the Patra Kavna weekend in Inneskeen and they got a money prize and that was to be used for publication. And Susan Connolly has made a discovery. This was an old cassette that lived in my shed for about 20 years but was rescued. The cassette is a recording of the launch of new collections published by Salmon Poetry in 1993, including Angela Green's Silence and the Blue Night. Before I read my poem, I'd like to thank Jesse Lindenny and all the staff at Pool Bay Salmon Press and my friend Susan Connolly for helping me put this first collection together. My favourite poem of all time, and this is not just of my mother's, but of all time, is one called Letting Go. Letting Go. The false security of the simple and the ordinary. I lift the latch, push, take several steps across the bright linoleum towards the dresser, shouting, kids, kids, I can hardly hear my ears when I realize I am in a dream. The fool in me not wanting to accept change. In that moment, I had my children as I still want them to be. Kilts and knee socks, short pants and t-shirts. The soft splash as milk falls from the tray of the high chair. I'm reaching back to them from chat through chores to play. What I didn't know then, that rowdy kitchen was a piece of cake. I ruled the roost. Now these young men and women sprawl over so much space they scare me. The world's the oyster their minds prize wide. They talk inches above my head. Their laughter and their language leap beyond me. Now, I am forced to look at time in another way. Not as so many grains of sand flowing from glass belly to glass belly, but how, through the persistent gnawing of years, I've weathered as I watch them grow. And how at last, as I let go and slip behind them, I ease my bones into the universe. Our next poet takes us back over 200 years to the daughter of a clergyman. Here's Bernadette Gallagher. Dorothea Herbert was born, we think about 1769, even though it could be 1770, but it looks like 1769. And her father was a Protestant clergyman. They lived in Carrick-on-Sure. They had a villa there, a rectory. He was part of the Herberts of Muckross and her mother was part of the family from County Kilkenny uh, connected with uh, royalty. So although they had connections with royalty, they were actually of lower gentry status. Dorothea's long poem, The Parson's Fireside, describes what purports to be a typical evening in the family home. The Parson's Fireside or family pictures. The words of Dorothea Herbert are read here by Ingrid Craigie, and the poem starts by painting a cosy scene. In the chimney corner, snug, wrapped in a surtout of rug with good-humoured, ruddy face, sits the parson at his ease, nodding in his easy chair, void of trouble, void of care. His nightly task of shutting doors now ended, he profoundly snores. The parson's slumber is interrupted, and all is not well. Then, 
waking from his evening nap, says positively there's some gap through which the wind its entrance makes, for he's all over pain and aches. And then, addressing thus his wife, my dear, it may cost me my life, but you're at all times such a joker. For goodness sake, reach me the poker, the brush, the shovel and the tongs. This cold will fall upon my lungs. A scuffle surely now ensues. His dame will not her privilege lose. She vows tis hers to stir the fire, nor must he to that deed aspire. So there's a very funny kind of reflection on her parents because she wants to do something with the fire and it's really his job. To every wish and every plan of hers, the quiet, honest man accedes. But this, his hobby horse. Nor wife, nor any earthly force, he swears, shall ever rest from him. So she must drop this silly whim. This privilege alone he craves, all other things to her he leaves. The lady, being discreet and wise, e'en thinks it best to compromise, but vows, were she a saint, such a man would provoke her, then hands him the shovel, the tongs, and the poker. Even in a comical poem like this, we learn something of the historical background. The newspapers come, and there is a rumour the French have been beaten by sea and by land, and that their republic no longer can stand. And, of course, they were delighted the fact that the French were being beaten. The poem goes on to describe how various family members spend the evening and ends with a scene that any family who has ever played cards together might recognise. To end the night to cards, they set. The winners crow, the losers fret, and many provoking jokes must bear from the victorious winning pair till the long chequered winter's night ends with a fierce and general fight. Should critics now choose to set up a great clatter and say that such characters are not in nature, the parson, his dogs, his sons, daughters and wife, I vow, are all characters drawn from the life. Like so many women of her time, Dorothy Herbert's work was not published in her lifetime. But that does not seem to have slowed down her desire to write, and she produced quite a body of work. She kept a journal, and she wrote what subsequently was published a hundred years after she died, a book called Retrospections of Dorothea Herbert. So the manuscript of that is in Trinity College, Dublin. She also talks about having written uh, plays, but they haven't come to light. Plus, what we didn't know up until about, I guess, 2010, uh, or it became publicly known, was the fact that she actually had also got a poetry manuscript. Dorothea Herbert's poetry manuscript lay forgotten for some two centuries. It was discovered by Frances Finnegan, and thanks to her we have access to the poems which she published in her book Introspections, The Poetry and Private World of Dorothea Herbert in 2011. Dorothea has written quite a wide range of poetry, as we know from Frances Finnegan's book. She has written um, on her own family. She has written on the landscape of the area that she lived in, on women's issues, on family life and different dinners and balls that would have happened in the area. She's written uh, poems that are less than 10 lines to a mock heroic poem that exceeds 1,000 lines. The mock heroic poem is called The Buckyhead. 
we think it's about her brothers and about other men that she would have seen in her lifetime. Acting foolishly, um, behaving in a, a not very gentlemanly like manner. And it's basically a satire on that. Her barbarous troops, the mob, a savage horde, sallied abroad the city to torment on every kind of mischief firmly bent. It's over a thousand lines long. I think it's 1300 plus lines long. It's in four books and mimics the form of the typical mock heroic. And it would have been one of the last mock heroic poems of that period. But this poem is an exception. Most are much shorter and many are about the lives of women. One in particular gives us an idea of how ideas and attitudes were beginning to change. The rights of woman. She wrote this, it would appear, sometime uh, 1792-93 because she refers to a book by Thomas Paine, The Rights of Man, and also Mary Wollstonecraft's book, Vindication of the Rights of Women. She also talks about uh, the French Revolution, of course, which was happening at that point and would, I guess, in a sense, be looking down probably at the sans-culotte, which would have been the revolutionary person on the street. Whilst man is so busy asserting his rights, shall woman lie still without gaining new lights? Our sex have been surely restrained enough by stiff prudish dress and such old-fashioned stuff. Too long have been fettered and trammelled, I wot, with cumbersome trains and the strict petticoat. Yet, should a poor wife dare her tyrant to chide, Oh, she wears the breeches, they tauntingly cried. But now we're enlightened, they'll find to their shame we'll have the reality, not the bare name. No longer will woman to satire be dupe, for she is determined to figure sans jupe, and once she is roused, she will not be outdone, nor stop at this one reformation alone. For, mark me, proud man, she'll not yield thee a jot, but soon will become in a true sans-culotte, and flourish away in the ending of spring, sans-jupe, sans-culotte, in short, sans-anything. Ça va, et ça... Ira, liberty and equality forever. It's unclear to us looking at it, is she making fun of the rights of women? You know, is she a supporter or is she making fun? And from her reading, one would be inclined to think that she was conservative, but then we just don't know. Maybe secretly she did support women's rights. And there's no denying the constraints on women's lives and the expectations of the time. Her friend, for example, Betty, got married at 15. So the expectation was that you would become married or you'd become an old maid. Dorothea Herbert's poem, Lines Addressed to a Friend, which is for her friend Betty, or Bess, as she calls her in the poem, is one of Bernadette's favourites. The poem's full title gives a clue to its tone. Lines addressed to a friend, who used laughingly wish the author married to some peer or bishop, 
that she might give her husband a good fat living. There's a lot of fun and uh, frivolity. One gets the feeling that in this poem, both herself and her friend that she mentions, Betty Hare, you imagine that they've had many, many conversations about the idea of getting a good man uh, for Dorothea, as in a good man with money that will support both Dorothea's brother and the husband of her friend, Betty. And the fact that some of the... um, men that Dorothea might have liked to have had as her husband are now gone, as in they're they're married off or they're unavailable. Come, my laughter-loving friend, seriously for once attend and say if these words be true. You love me as I love you. For most truly I can swear ne'er was friendship more sincere, more unmixed, more pure than mine, my dear Bess, for thee and thine. Oh, that I by deeds could prove how sincerely I thee love. But those nasty, selfish lords won't let me fulfil my words. Nor will e'en a sleek, fat bishop leave it in my power to dish up a good living to your clerk. For, in fact, I do remark, not one titled wretch doth show a penchant to be my beau. Clifton, Cork, already gone, Callan's heart a perfect stone. For myself, I could endure their neglect if they'd procure one good living for my brother and for my friend Clark, another. Choke them. Not one tender glance tells me we've the smallest chance. Well, what can befall us worse than to have an empty purse, which... When drained, we'll e'en turn writers and curse coronets and mitres. Dorothea herself was unlucky in love. John Rowe, a young man she admired, married someone else. And we don't know a lot about her later years, but there's great sadness in what we do know. From her journal writings in 1807, we know that she was confined to um, the house and probably to a room. She suffered, we know, from melancholia from an early age and this was exacerbated by the relationship or non-relationship with John Rowe and also with the um, conflict that was happening around that time. And we know nothing about her from about 1809 until she died in 1828. Knowing this may colour the way we read her poem, Solitude. This poem is interesting because within it, she uses really large script for words like virtue, ease, religion, innocence, reflection and meditation. So you can see she's really reflecting on her life and reflecting on life in general. As the poem opens, solitude is seen as something desirable. Solitude, source of every joy, thou sweet companion, ne'er canst cloy my pleased breast. For, ah, with thee I find such sweet tranquillity, such pure, delicious pleasure taste, such sweet contentment in my breast, that when with crowds I'm forced to mix, still my attention thou dost fix. I sigh and wish myself away with thee, dear solitude, to stray. But later in the poem, 
solitude becomes something with a note of sadness. With some books of different kind to improve and entertain my mind, a few choice friends, domestic glee, and a small house from bustle free, a little chamber to retire when weary of the social fire, a frugal table just spread o'er with what's sufficient and no more of food that's wholesome, cheap, and plain. Enough of clothes to keep me clean, no matter if a little coarse, if neat, I'll not think them the worse. I'd also have, amongst my enjoyments, materials for some few employments. But above all, I'd have with thee music enchanting harmony. These delights, whilst thou canst give, with thee, dear solitude, I'd live. We don't know if Dorothea Herbert tried to get her poems published in her lifetime, but there are tantalizing clues. We know by the form of the poetry manuscript that it was in such a form that it was prepared absolutely as if it was ready for publication. And we also know that she shared her poems quite widely not just with family and friends, but it went further than that. And that would have been quite typical of the day. People would have written work in manuscript form and they would have shared it with other people. Today, we can read about Dorothea Herbert and read her poetry in Francis Finnegan's book, Introspections, the Poetry and Private World of Dorothea Herbert, and also in the essay which Bernadette Gallagher has contributed to Irish Women Poets Rediscovered. I think she would be absolutely delighted. I imagine she would be really, really thrilled. Picture a fisherman out at sea on a dark night off the coast of Ireland. He's in a situation where he's surrounded by mountainous waves, wild roaring seas, which he interprets as the sea folk. This is Carol Baranyuk, research associate in Robert Burns studies at the University of Glasgow. He believes he has seen a party of mermen who are rolling a drowned corpse before them and he interprets this as a portent of his own death. He's convinced after this that he's going to die by drowning at sea, that having looked at the mermen and seen them and his gaze returned, that they've now got him in their sights and he won't survive much longer. He'll die at sea. The sea folk. I saw the sea folk ride round Rachra in the dawn, on their white leopard horses thundering on. I wished they hadn't looked my way, so be I might forget, for they tried to stove the boat on me, and they tore my trawling net. Each one we a whipping weed lashed at his foaming horse, 
and him who drove the hardest carried a drowned course. I closed my eyes as it went by, swinging through the brine. But off the swirl old kinban, I saw its wet hair shine. I heard their piper play the black north wind, and when you hear thon skirlin' queer dreams come to your mind. There's not a tune in Ulster I'd put before the one that led the sea folk lappin' round Rachra in the dawn. Now I've seen them riding. The sea must be my bed. I'd liefer have the green swords and roses sweet and red. But once there'll be a callin' when I beat a rising stir, nor all the sea folk in the sea will keep me back from her. The reader is Eleanor Methvin, and the poem is by Florence Mary Wilson, who published her work in the early years of the 20th century. She published several poems in journals and in an Irish anthology by Porig Gregory, and she was known to members of the circle of W.B. Yeats who admired her work. And eventually, in 1918, she was able to put together a small collection of poetry called The Coming of the Earls, in which she put some of her best work. The theme of the poem, The Sea Folk, is typical of many of the poems in the collection. There are several poems that tap into mythological themes and subjects. She's also very interested in the countryside of Ulster, uh, County Down, County Antrim, the north coast, where the family took their holidays. And she also shows her interest there in subjects such as the flight of the Earls uh, before the plantation of Ulster. And the 1798 rebellion was another great interest and her most famous work, The Man From God Knows Where, was actually part of that collection too. Florence Mary Wilson was from a comfortable upper middle class background. Florence was from Lisburn. Her father was the manager in a spinning mill and they were a Methodist family. She was born in 1873. But in 1898, she married a bangerman, Frederick Graham Wilson, who was a solicitor in Bangor from a, a big company. They had offices in, in Bangor and in Belfast. And so she came to live with him in Ballyhome just on the outskirts of Bangor. They were married in Shore Street Presbyterian Church in Donacadee, just a bit further down the coast in County Down. So this became her home, and she writes a great deal in her unpublished manuscript. She has stories set down the Ards Peninsula, which was clearly another area that she really loved. The poems in Florence Mary Wilson's collection didn't just hark back to history and to Irish mythology, Others dealt with more contemporary issues. The collection was published in 1918, so some of the poems would have been written during World War I, and indeed the collection is dedicated to her son Niall, who fought on the Western Front in the trenches, and whose safety she was very, very concerned about, of course, throughout the war. And she writes the poem Doherty's Dance from the point of view of a young girl. It's very much written using an Ulster Scots vocabulary. And 
She would have heard that from the servants and the working people. It wouldn't have been the way she and her own family would have spoken, being from the upper middle class, but the working people, the labouring class people around her would have used a lot of these Ulster Scots expressions. And the voice in the poem seems to be that of a young girl, probably from the serving or working classes, who's out enjoying herself at a dance. And her mother comes and knocks on the door and says, it's really time you were in your bed. And of course, like any young woman, she's not too pleased at that. Uh, and unwillingly leaves the dance, but her mother has actually come to let her know that they've received word that this young woman's fiancé has been killed on the Western Front. There's a real sense of bereavement and loss and guilt and self-reproach that comes through in the poem, and it comes through in a very effective and very real way, just because of the life that the Ulster Scots expressions that are used bring to the voice. Dougherty's Dance The night the black news reached us across the sea from France, I was beyond a Dougherty's leading in the dance. I wore a gold brooch in my breast, and my white dress set off just like a charm, they said, my partiness. There come a rapping to the door, and someone be to say, "'Twill be the fiddler from Glen Hoy, old blind Pat Ray." But my mother stepped inside, with her shawl about her head, and says she, "'Tis time, Alana, that you were in your bed." Says I, the night is young yet, and the stir will soon be done, and the morrow I'll rise fresher for this hurtsome bit of fun. I spoke as any girl might speak and her not old nor plain. But I'll not dance at Doherty's, nor at Era House again. She might have told me then and there, not kept it hid from sight. Twas like I danced beside his bed on the wake feast night. Twas like I laughed to see him fall in the red fields of France. Oh! Me arrayed in gold and white, lapping at Doherty's dance. Florence Mary Wilson was well known in her day, with work published in Irish and English journals and newspapers. But sometimes she was not quite productive enough to please her friend, the writer and activist Alice Milligan. Alice was a single woman, and Alice would take every opportunity to speak to Florence on her own, to try to nag her to write more poetry because she recognised the talent that Florence had. Of course, what she didn't allow for was the fact that Florence, with a large family of children, up to nine children born, although not all of them survived, Florence, with a large family of children, a household to look after, and a husband who probably had the sort of expectations of her that, that men had of their wives in those days, she didn't have the time just to drop everything and write in the way that Alice would have wanted her to do. Alice, on one occasion, said to her, instead of making jam, why don't you write verse? Uh, which... Florence, of course, I, I think she didn't even know where to start to try to explain to Alice that, that it wasn't just quite as simple as that when she had so many other people depending on her and expecting things from her. 
but despite not having quite as prolific an output as her friend Alice Milligan might have wished, Florence Mary Wilson achieved lasting success. One poem in particular stands out. The poem is The Man from God Knows Where. It's still remembered and recited, helped on by a new surge of interest in recent years. And I think people in the North generally, whatever their political persuasion, looked again with interest at what Florence Wilson, this northern woman from a Methodist Presbyterian background, had set down about the 1798 rebellion and a sense of of pride, really, that um, she could have done it so well and so effectively in such a, a dramatic and compelling piece. A century after it was written, the songwriter Phil Coulter included the poem on his album, The Songs I Love So Well. In our town land on a night of snow rode a man from God knows where. None of us bade him stay nor go nor deemed him friend nor damned him foe, but we stabled his big roan there. For in our town land were a decent folk, and if he didn't speak well, none of us spoke, but we sat till the fire burned low. We're a civil sort in our wee place, so we made the circle wide round Andy Lemon's cheerful blaze. And we wished the man his length of days and a good end to his ride. He smiled and under a slouchy hat and says he, there's a bit of a joke in that, for we ride different ways. And while we smoked, we watched him stare from his seat in the fire glow. I nudged Joe Moore. You wouldn't dare to ask him who he's for meeting there or how far he's got to go. <laughs> but Joe wouldn't dare, nor Willie Scott. And he took no drink, neither cold nor hot, this man from God knows where. The poem, it's quite a long piece, goes on and describes what she calls the time of the hurry, which is the time when the communities came out armed largely with pikes and got ready for battle in places across the north like Antrim, Saintfield, Balnahinch. And how, of course, it all came to nothing. The rebellion was put down within a very short time. And uh, it looked as if all the hopes that people had had were dashed forever. The mysterious figure in the poem, The Man from God Knows Where, is Thomas Russell. He was a supporter of Wolfe Tone and the United Irishmen. When she writes, you can tell that she's spellbound by all of these stories. And her writing weaves its own spell then and draws the reader in. It certainly drew me in. The poet whose work drew in Cara Baranyuk was Florence Mary Wilson. Earlier, we heard Bernadette Gallagher talking about Dorothea Herbert. I really feel that Dorothea's work holds up extremely well against not just writers of her time, but writers prior to her time and Susan Connolly and Miriam Green talking about Angela Green. And I'm glad that she hasn't been forgotten. The work of Angela Green, Dorothea Herbert, Florence Mary Wilson are part of the history of Irish poetry and all three feature in Irish Women Poets Rediscovered, published by Cork University Press. By Don Patrick Jail I was bound to fare on a day I'll remember fifth. But when I got to the prison square the people were waiting in hundreds there. You wouldn't hear stir or breath. 
the soldiers were standing grim and tall round a scaffold built there for an instant wall. And a man stepped out for death. I was braving near the edge of the throng, but I knew the face again. And I knew the set and I knew the walk and the sound of his strange up-country talk. For he spoke out right and plain. Then... He bowed his head to the swinging rope, but I said, please God, to his dying hope, and amen to his dying prayer that the wrong would cease and the right prevail. For the man they hanged at Downpatrick Jail was the man from God knows where. That second episode of the series Sublimer Wishes was presented and produced by Claire Cunningham. The contributors were Susan Connolly, Miriam Green, Bernadette Gallagher and Carol Baranyuk. Miriam Green and Paula McGlinchey read the poetry of Angela Green. Dorothea Herbert's poems were read by Ingrid Craigie and the work of Florence Mary Wilson by Eleanor Methven. All three poets are included in a new book, Irish Women Poets Rediscovered, published by Cork University Press and edited by Maria Johnston and Connor Linney. The book will be launched this week at the Irish Architectural Archive in Dublin by Elaine de Quillanon. We'll feature the work of three more poets from that book in a further episode of Sublimer Wishes later this year. Sublimer Wishes is a Rockfinch production for RTE Lyric FM and sound supervision was by Tin Pot Productions. The programme is available to podcast or stream from the RTE Lyric FM website, from the RTE Radio Player and from other locations. And you can also find the first episode of Sublimer Wishes from the same sources.